Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Diana DeHanabam, and today I will be speaking with John Bushnell, professor of history at Northwestern University. He's the author of the 2017 book, Russian Peasant Women Who Refused to Marry, Spossified Old Believers in the 18th and 19th Centuries. Dr. Bushnell, thank you very much for taking the time to discuss your book today. Thank you for being interested. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your research background and how you came to be interested in this particular topic? Uh, the, the short version is the easiest one. Um, the very first book I wrote was on the mutinies by soldiers during the 1905-1906 uh, revolution. And to make a long story short, I explained the particular pattern of the mutinies uh, on the basis of what I thought was peasant psychology. Uh, But by the time I'd finished the book, I realized I really didn't know very much about peasants, and I was kind of interested by the time I finished that book. Uh, And so I decided I would write my next book on peasant culture. Uh, And after doing some reading, I realized that um, one of the best documented features of peasant culture was marriage, because both the church and the state took kept track of, um, of, uh, of, of marriage and, you know, in sort of demographic, in a demographic way, uh, and also collected a, a lot of documents about marriage, wrote a lot of reports about marriage, about marriage violations, and so on and so forth. So there was, uh, that seemed to me to be the as a first guess, the best way to get a long historical take on what was obviously an important uh, form of peasant um, of, of peasant culture, segment of peasant culture, and did, and did indeed turn out to be uh, a very a useful way to get at um, the history of peasants in a way that didn't have a great deal to do with uh, the economy. Most of most most of the so long historical um, views of peasantry at that time were economic for good reasons, because uh, the peasant economy was important in Russia, because serfdom was an important issue, um, and because social historians were interested in that kind of thing. Um, and it turned out that I learned an awful lot about peasants uh, just by spending a number of years uh, looking at peasant marriage in, in as many different ways as I could. Uh, and then I went to hmm, – I had spent a lot of time in uh, Riazan and in Riazan province, uh, peasants married universally. Universal marriage was the – assumed um, practice of all Russian peasants. Every Russian historian, every Russian ethnographer who studied peasants or peasant marriage just just insisted that Russian peasants married universally. It was true uh, in every 
place that I worked from Moscow on south, but I decided I needed to look at a different kind of peasants, peasants who lived in a different economic environment, different ecology. And I went to Vladimir and on a lark ordered a set of uh, documents that covered um, uh, Garchavets Uyezd, and I picked some of those at random. And at random, I landed on a parish, Kuplia Parish, uh, in which there were was clear evidence that large numbers of adult women were unmarried. Uh, and that took me by surprise. I didn't really know uh, what to make of it at first. I had I made no large assumptions. I found it interesting, and I thought about that for a while. Of course, it was possible to find groups of peasants who didn't marry almost everywhere, um, but the peasants in Kuklia Parish set a kind of record for marriage avoidance, or that is, the women did in the one village, Sluchkova. Um, again, this was just struck me as amazing. So um, in 1795, that was a census year, 1795, um, 44% of all adult peasant women, that is all peasant women 25 years and older, 25 was the cutoff age for marriage in that parish. Paris, if women weren't, if women hadn't married by 25, they just didn't marry. Um, so 44% of all of the women in that village who were 25 years old and older had never married and never did. And then when I got more documents um, so I could trace, you know, what had happened to women born in the village, that is, some women married away. So the 44% includes a lot of wives who were import, came from other, born in other village and married into um, Sluchkova. And it turned out that between 1763 and 1795, 70% of all women born in the village of Sluchkova never married, which was mind-boggling to me. Anyway, so that's what launched me. Uh, on this particular project, I went. I went and looked for, went out looking for other examples to see if this was just a, a fluke or um, whether it represented a, to that point, completely unknown pattern of Russian peasant marriage. And what did you discover when you uh, thought to find an answer to this question of why there were so many women who were unmarried? Uh, eventually, I realized that this was a religious practice. Um, that, uh, of course, that was my first inclination, but I had uh, no particular reason, no particular evidence, because these peasants uh, didn't leave documents behind. These, these, by the way, were. Uh, hmm. Crown peasants, that is, they belonged to the family of the ruler. And I went to look in the sort of in St. Petersburg, or back when I started, it was still Leningrad. Um, no, pardon me, it was anyway, so St. Petersburg. And there was absolutely no correspondence between the Gerakovets, um 
uh, Crown Peasant Office and the, administ the central administration in St. Petersburg. So I discovered that, in fact, the only evidence I was going to be able to use was demographic records. Now, the clue in, in for Slutskova, and this is another astounding um, coincidence, uh, this is the the Kuplia Parish is the produced the only set of what are called confession records. This is every year the priest has to compile a list of every one of his uh, parishioners from uh, just from newborn babes to the oldest man or woman in the parish, uh, and the priests. Did a very good job of uh, identifying who, or it seemed to me, they were doing a very good job of identifying old believers, a kind of uh, Russian dissidents. Now, many in many parishes, you find notations in these annual confession registers of who didn't go to confession because they were old believers. It said they don't go to. The priest is supposed to explain why. His parishioners are not going to confession, and sometimes because they're sick, sometimes because they're away during Lent. Lent is when uh, peasants make their annual confession. Uh, and then they sometimes identify this is an, an old believer, or one member of the family is an old believer, the whole family is an old believer. In, uh, for part of the first half of the 19th century, the Kuplia priests identified what confession, uh, what particular variety of old believers uh, their old believers were, and in the in the, in the first half of the nineteenth century, the priest identified most of the old believers in the parish as being members of the Spasovite uh, covenant. I, I knew absolutely nothing. Well, next to nothing about uh, Spasovites when I um, began to follow these leads. And it turned out that nobody knew very much about uh, Spasovites, and nobody who had ever written about Spasovites, uh, that is, no scholars who had written about Spasovites, no religious commentators who wrote about Spasovites, none of them had ever said. Uh, that Spasovite women did not marry and did not marry in very large numbers. Uh, so having discovered this phenomenon of large numbers of uh, women uh, marrying, uh, not marrying, and then trying to figure out who they were, what their likely reasons were, I identified the Spasovite um, covenant as probably providing the inspiration for their aversion to marriage. And, you know, having identified one site of um, resistance to marriage, uh, I went on the look, I sort of knew what, I had enough clues from Kuplia Parish that I knew what to look for, and I very quickly discovered other other sites of resistance to marriage. And lo and behold, uh, almost every um, incident of full-scale resistance to marriage, uh, there were Spasovites around. And I decided that just couldn't be a coincidence. Uh, so just for our listeners who might not be familiar, can you talk a little bit about what an old believer actually is and how they're different from mainstream Russian Orthodox? So... 
All believers emerged in response to religious reforms uh, carried out in the middle of the 17th uh, century by uh, Patriarch Nikon. Well, Nikon supervised, oversaw the reforms. There were other people uh, doing some of the work. Uh, and these reforms generally involved changing uh, rituals slightly or to the outside eye. It seems like a slight change when you, instead of uh, making the sign of the cross with two fingers, you begin to use three fingers instead. Uh, when you um, say hallelujah two times instead of once in the, at a certain point or three times at a certain point uh, in the service. There are also some changes to religious texts. Again, to an outsider, they seem pretty minor. Uh, spelling Jesus with two eyes in the, in the Russian spelling at the big sort two eyes at the beginning of the name instead of one, which had been the way the name was spelled before uh, the uh, Nikon's reforms. Um, so the difference between uh, so old, old believers uh, thought that these were heretical reforms. They thought that these, and there, there were many of them, not just a few, there were many changes, minor, we, we say minor changes, but to the um, the people who became old believers, this all like a, a terrible def, a departure from uh, proper orthodoxy. They thought that because for so many centuries, they assumed, for since Nikon was making alterations and what the old believers assumed was the original uh, set of the set of rituals that had been adopted when uh, Christianity arrived in what became Russia and uh, texts were all had all had, had lasted unchanged over all those same centuries. Even minor changes uh, seemed uh, terribly threatening. And they concluded that the old believers concluded, most of them, uh, that um, the entire Orthodox Church had become heretical uh, and that this marked the approaching end of the world, that the Antichrist uh, was, in fact, probably roaming Russia in the aftermath of these reforms. Now, I, I don't mean to belittle the old believer sensibility of what I've been calling minor uh, changes. To the, for, for them, those rituals were uh, immensely important. The changes were deeply symbolic and offensive, uh, and they sincerely believed that the official Orthodox Church had gone off the rails, had obviously this is the devil at work, the Antichrist at work, uh, that these, these this set of changes that was introduced uh, could not be anything other than a sig sig signal that um, uh, the end times were uh, approaching. So although the changes looked minor, people took them very seriously, and I Think about how important even minor symbolic changes can be. Given up, for instance, our own recent controversies over: Do you is it is it permissible to kneel 
uh, when uh, the national anthem is being um, uh, being sung, or how do you properly treat a flag? I mean, they're all these are all just sort of symbolic differences uh, whose importance most people would say is, or many people would say, is vastly exaggerated. But if if uh, those kinds of symbolic differences can have a major impact on modern Americans, then I think I'm, pre- I'm prepared to understand why these seemingly minor changes would have a tremendous impact in 17th century Russia and later. Yeah, and in fact, in the original Russian uh, Staroobrazhsi, so they're actually even called old ritualists, right, rather than old believers. Old ritual, old ritualists. Yes, I, I thought about calling them old ritualists, but old old believers has kind of become the standard translation, and I thought I'd use that word too. Um, now, how did the their theological beliefs impact their matrimonial and their sexual behavior that so distinguished from? Right. Well, so theology here. Um, So theologically speaking, and maybe maybe we could have a very interesting, maybe you could enlighten me about this. Uh, I don't come out of a religious uh, studies background at all. I had to, uh, I I knew surprisingly little about Russian religious history when I launched onto this project because I didn't, when this project, I didn't realize that I was going to have to know that, those kinds of things. So I have spent a lot of time reading, but theology is not my strong point, that's for sure. Uh, My impression is basically, theologically, the Official Orthodox and the old believers share the same theological views. That is, that is, they claim to believe the same things. They generally do believe the same things. That is, they sort of have. It's just that uh, the old believers insist that it's not just belief; it's actual practice. And in practice, um, the uh, the Orthodox Church has taken a left turn. Um, nevertheless. Uh, if the official Orthodox Church is heretical, that has major consequences for religious practice. Among other things, uh, it means that there is no hierarchy. Now, I should explain, as you, you know, uh, that old believers come in two basic varieties. There are the priestless old believers, uh, and they're the ones that I have uh, focused on in this study. The priestless old believers call themselves um, priestless and or are called priestless by others uh, because they insist that the priesthood disappeared after the Nikonian uh, reforms. The priesthood disappeared because no bishop well, there's a, there's some there's an exception here, but in effect, no bishop joined the old believers, and no priests can be um, created without bishops laying, as we would Protestants would say, laying their hands on, or Catholics too, I suppose, laying laying the hands on, sort of blessing uh, someone into into priesthood. Uh, so when the last of the priests who had become priests before the Nikonian forms died, priesthood, according to the old believers, had disappeared. It's very difficult to lead a Christian life without priesthood. Priests uh, um, 
deliver the sacraments, just for instance, with a couple of exceptions. The sacraments require um, priests to perform them. The other variety of uh, old believers, generally called, well, they're either called priestly or priesthood. I prefer priesthood. Uh, they, they too, are fundamentally similar uh, to Orthodox when it comes to matters of the faith. They solved the problem of the absence of priesthood, uh, of priests, by hmm, anointing, by taking priests who <laughs> had been become priests after the Nikonian reforms and therefore were illegitimate priests, they reconsecrated them by anointing them with myrrh, um, you know, saying the right set of prayers and blessings and things like that. I should say that there's absolutely uh, no canonical, no, no rules of the Orthodox Church allow for that kind of sort of rebranding of uh, uh, and illegitimate priest to make the priest illegitimate, but uh, they did struggle on with priests who fled the uh, Orthodox Church and became old believers themselves, and then in the middle of the 19th century, in another sneaky left-handed kind of way, uh, they managed to create their own independent hierarchy with bishops who could then uh, create new priests entirely out of old believers. They didn't depend upon the, the fugitive priests who ran away from the Orthodox uh, Church. Now, so back to the priesthood, I mean, I mean the priestless uh, old believers. They have, they claim to be def defending and preserving all of the old practices uh, but of course, they have to be, had to be reformers, innovators in order to carry on their, what they thought of as proper Orthodox life, proper Orthodox um, uh, practice. And I will, I guess, here take a right turn uh, into the Spasovites, because the Spasovites had even more radical uh, beliefs than or radical, let's call radical rejectionist beliefs, than any other of the various priestless covenants. One of the things that happened after uh, the schism in the Russian Orthodox Church uh, is that all of those who called themselves old believers had to invent new ways of doing old things. And it's not surprising that just like Protestants who broke away from the Catholic Church, different groups of these priestless old believers um, invented different ways of carrying on what they thought uh, was uh, the old the old uh, the old belief so uh, the Spasovites came to the the founder of the Spasovites came to the radical conclusion that after the Nikonian reforms God had withdrawn his grace from the world and as God withdrew his grace, all of the church sacraments also departed from the world, all of them. Now, even two sacraments that uh, the old 
Orthodox rules had allowed laymen to uh, perform or administer uh, in or celebrate in the absence of a priest. Uh, for instance, you could baptize a lay, a lay person, a lay member of the Orthodox Church could baptize a newborn child. Uh, could also, uh, I don't, don't want to administer confession isn't right here, confession in place of a priest. But the, the Spasovites insisted that no, uh, even those two sacraments had disappeared. So now we have a group of people who claim to be Orthodox, but who believe that God has has become completely indifferent to the fate of the world. God is obviously angry uh, with what the Russian church did. And so, in effect, God is punishing uh, Russia and, in fact, the entire world, although the old believers never took their thinking beyond uh, the limits of, of, the, uh, of the Russian uh, empire. So, what do you do? How do you carry on an orthodox life uh, if you uh, if there are no priests, well, if you, there are no priests, there's nobody to uh, to marry lay people to perform the marriage sacrament, uh, and so all of the priestless priestless covenants, including the uh, Spasovites, began by claiming that uh, marriage was no more, uh, and marriage. If you get married in an Orthodox church, that's an even worse sin than fornication. Fornication was, of course, a very bad thing. Um, but getting married in an Orthodox church with a, a, a heretical, as the, ortho, or the old believers would say, a heretical priest, uh, that was even worse. And, and so the Spasovites, like all of the other um, priestless old believer covenants uh, in the in the early 18th century proclaimed that marriage was no more. That uh, was possible. Let's say it was possible for the old believer intellectual elite, those who devoted their life full time to uh, their. Uh, religious profession, uh, they could manage a, um, a celibate lifestyle, both men and women. But I was studying peasants out in the villages, and one of the things that happened to peasants uh, was that although many of them may have begun uh, to live celibate lives, uh, for the peasantry, that's a form of suicide, uh, obviously, and it's more than just individual. It's, it's suicide for the peasant household. Uh, a household is the basic social unit uh, in a peasant village, and among peasants, among Russian peasants, certainly. And if men don't marry... Uh, then there will be no one. If sort of, if 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 sons don't marry, then there will be no one to support the father and the mother if they're still alive uh, later in life. Uh, and then eventually the the sons will die out. And so it's easy to find in 
some of the villages that I was looking at, it was easy easy to trace the out the inevitable inevitable path from the adoption of a celibate lifestyle to the uh, death of the of the peasant household. Uh, so, what generally happened among peasants, not all peasants, but what generally happened among peasants is that they resumed marriage. Uh, despite the protests, despite the commands of the leaders of their particular covenants. But this happened in all covenants. Uh, there was, and eventually all covenants accepted that marriage was going on, and they, they adopted, some of them adopted new rules, which they claimed uh, allowed peasants to bless their children into marriage. Uh, there was a relatively famous um, thinker associated with the Pomorsk, one of the more interesting old believer groups, who claimed that it wasn't actually the priest who consecrated the marriage, it was God who concentrate, con- con- consecrated uh, the marriage, along with the parental blessing, which made marriage, which is also a constituent element of a, of a legitimate marriage. So the, 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 the priest in this interpretation was merely witnessing uh, the marriage. It was God who was uh, performing um, the marriage. I mean, that's a very deviant uh, interpretation. I, I don't know that I would call it theological, but it was it probably it, verge, it verges on on a mm-hmm. kind of a theological principle, at least. So then the 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 next step, if you want me to keep going, uh, is to explain what happened in particular in the Spasivite uh, covenant because. Uh, they were the most radical in denying the existence in practice, that is, there no of any sacraments at all. Sometime during the 18th century, however, uh, the Spasivite Covenant decided that uh, Spasivites could have their babies christened by an Orthodox priest in an Orthodox church, and that Spasivite couples could be married by an Orthodox priest in an Orthodox church. They didn't claim that these were genuine sacraments, uh, so they did not justify them in this innovation in uh, a theological way. It was, in fact, a bow to reality. Uh, and, uh, uh, old believers in other covenants in similar situations also had to make adaptations to the reality of, in particular, life in um, the villages. So, at some point, Spasivites be- resume marriage. But just as Spasivite leaders, I'm assuming it's just as, that's a guess, at some point after the Spasivites uh, resume marriage, female Spasivites in increasing numbers become averse to marriage. That is, Spasivite men marry, Spasivite women don't marry. 
uh, which, hmm, and that, that's evident. I mean, the fact is that uh, the pattern went like this. When you have a complete set of, uh, an adequately dense and lengthy set of um, demographic records, uh, what you see in the 18th century is that there, there's a first generation, a small, relatively small generation of Spasivite women who don't marry. Most of the Spasivite women at first do marry. But then in the second generation, uh, uh, a very large number, so the number of Spasivite women who don't marry increases rapidly. And at the same time, uh, a certain number of men also become marriage averse. So there's one generation in which there's a substantial number of houses or households uh, that become celibate. And you can, in some of the demographic records, you can almost pinpoint the moment at which a household decides to go completely celibate, because in some cases there are children, but then there are no children. Suddenly, the, the sort of to be several married couples in a single household, and at a certain point, none of the couples produce children anymore. I mean, there's if that happens in one or two households, then um, there are other possible explanations. But if it's a cluster, a significant cluster of households in one relatively small village, then you can say, yes, there's a very good probability that these households, even when they have already married, uh, these households have chosen uh, the path of celibacy, but that proved to be so destructive that it only there was only a single generation of men among whom some did not marry. After that first sort of second generation in the demographic history, the generation in which some men don't marry, um, the marriage among men resumes in the third generation while the number of women who don't marry increases. That's a very peculiar pattern, and it was identical in all of the, the, the three villages that I used as the basis of case studies where I could follow, where I had adequate records for tracing these things in, in some detail. So um, this, this is a bit paradoxical. I don't have a particularly good explanation for it, uh, but just as the, just as just as is figuratively speaking, even after the Spasivite covenant adopts marriage as a permissible practice, uh, more and more Spasivite women stop stop marrying. If eventually, a century later. Uh, eventually, uh, all varieties of the Spasivite Covenant, and there are at least three of them and three varieties and maybe more, uh, they, they all, um, for the most part, uh, practice marriage. Um, but in the, in the initial, in the, in the second half of the 18th century and the first quarter or the first third of the 19th century, uh, the women in very large, surprisingly, astoundingly large numbers don't marry. So uh, I've gone on a little bit too long. So I'll add then what, what the other. So th 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 this raises a lot of questions. So 
uh, one set of questions has to do what's the impact of um, this, these uh, strange demographic, demographic practices. Um, so when large numbers of women um, don't marry, uh, they, their households begin to accumulate um, unmarried adult women. Uh, this greatly disturbs the sort of balance between work, labor, and mouths to feed. And this is further complicated by the fact that when one household collapses, refugees have to find shelter in some other household. So they're not only accumulating their own women born into the household, they're gathering in extra women as well. Uh, so the, in other words, the practice of women not marrying, and in some households, there can be three or four women in the household, adult women who never married. That'd be the older generation and then the middle generation. Um, and so if you have four adult women who never married and the sons are marrying or bringing in women, so you get a, a we can call them surplus uh, women, or you can call them extra mouths who don't perform the amount of labor that's needed to sustain the household at a level of what a peasant would consider well-being. So that's one. So this practice had led this practice led Spasivite households to be particularly vulnerable to household extinction. And that stands out. Can, uh, the rates of extinction can be calculated from the uh, demographic uh, records. There is there is an ex there are exceptions, but the pattern seems to be that Spasivite households, households with lots of extra women, adult women, uh, had a tendency to expire considerably more rapidly than households that didn't accumulate um, extra adult uh, women. That's one. And then there's also many, many of the many of the many Spasivites are on serf estates, uh, and one of the things that had always been a or has mostly been assumed to be the case is that uh, serf owners took great pains to ensure that all their women married. Um, that turned out not to be true, um, but so. But, in any, but one of the things that uh, the practice of adult serf women not marrying did was to cause serf owners, really for the first time, to attempt to force their uh, serf women to marry, or to exploit economically. Uh, their unwillingness to marry. For instance, serf owners uh, charged, fined unmarried uh, adult women, the, meaning the father would have to pay uh, a fine for his unmarried adult daughters, uh, or, and sometimes both, uh, or the uh, serf owners started uh, manumitting uh women, serf women who would not marry, uh, and, and charging uh, the father or the family a very substantial amount of money uh, for, 
in return for uh, manumitting an, a woman who did not, a serf woman who did not uh, want to marry. Ordinarily, this the manumission price was a, about twice, uh, about twice what the cost of a serf woman was on uh, the market. So, uh, sorry to have uh, gone on so long, but to summarize, so there's the issue of uh, tracing the pattern of large numbers of women not marrying, trying to figure out what was going on religiously, what were the Spasovites thinking, what especially were the Spasovite women thinking, uh, then what are the consequences for the Spasovites themselves of this strange marriage practice, and what is the impact on serfdom? Uh, and it turns out, I make I make an argument, I'm not, ab well, a hypothesis really, is, I think a well-grounded hypothesis, that it was the fact that by the second half of the 18th century, large numbers of Spasovite, and not just Spasovite, other old believer women too, but large numbers of Spasovite women weren't marrying. Their peasant neighbors who were looking for wives for their sons complained to their owners, or when managers and owners looked at the copies of the census returns from their estates, they got their own copies, uh, they noticed this, the fact that there were very large numbers of unmarried women on the estates, and so they tried to take measures against uh, these women who weren't marrying. Um, and can you talk a little bit more about the nobles and the landowners and how, uh, as you write about in your book, they sort of misunderstood the motivations for marriage avoidance? So the most common misunderstanding uh, was the assumption that peasants were charging each other excessively high bride prices. That is, a the groom's family had to pay the bride's family a bride price. It's a practice in many societies. The bride price could be very high, uh, and there was good reason to think that sometimes the bride price was so high, that is the bride price that the bride's family demanded, was so high that uh, some peasants could not meet it. And yes, peasants did frequently complain that they could not find a wife because the fathers of uh, marriageable women in their village um, were charging more than they could possibly pay, 200 rubles, 300 rubles, things like that. I mean, that was just is a very a very large sum of money in, the, let's say, in the 18th, early 19th um, uh, century. Uh, but, but that wasn't the case at all. I mean, it was not the case that the bride price was the problem. If you couldn't find a pay for the bride, if the sort of the girl you had in mind had a father who wanted an excessively high bride price, you went to find, you married somebody else instead. I mean, it wasn't just in places where um, uh, where women were not marrying that uh, bride price was an important part of, the con of, of, of a marriage, uh, it, even where all women married. Uh, everybody had to pay, every peasant household had to pay a bride price to bring um, a wife in for a son. So it was an understandable, sort of the mistake about the bride price, that was un an understandable misunderstanding. 
So priestless old believers, because they didn't marry, very quickly gained a reputation among in within the church, among um, members of the Russian elite, among surf owners, um, gained a rep reputation for fornicating. I mean, how can these women not be um, not be marrying? They must be fornicating. Um, there probably, there definitely was some of that going on, but I don't think any more than in Orthodox um, families. Yeah, so those were, uh, the, the fornication was a kind of a, a cultural stereotype. Any woman, any sort of relatively young adult woman who wasn't married and was living, not living in a, in a, an obviously religious life, not living in a in a monastery, uh, not spending all every every waking hour in church. Um, uh, those w women were automatically suspected of having loose morals. Eventually, the um, some 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 um, some surf owners did did figure out or were. They learned by listening to what their serfs were saying, uh, learned that there was a religious basis to this um, practice, although uh, that didn't change their attitude towards it at all. I mean, they were either eaten, they, they, re they really wanted their, uh, their peasant women to marry, but if the serf women just stubbornly refused to marry, despite whatever moral and other pressure was applied to them, then they were determined to uh, charge the woman's family for the for the privilege of not having to marry. Uh, now, you make the case in your book that uh, the predominance of marriage avoidance in Spasavite communities also tells us that the daughters had more of a choice in general in the community over whether they were going to marry and whom. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Right. Now, I had to think about this for a while, and not everybody. I, when I was giving um, papers or discussing chapters with uh, colleagues in, at conferences, uh, a, a lot of people ob objected. So here's the, and it would be difficult to, I could not make that argument except for the fact that uh, in a number of Spasavite households where if you had three daughters, two of them would not marry, one of them would. So what is the likelihood that and we we have this assumption that especially in the 18th century it must be the case that parents are making the choice for daughters that is parents are some fathers in particular are said to have always decided when and to whom the daughter would marry the the the, the, the brides and one many times as well, the grooms didn't really have a, a say in decisions about uh, marriage. It was the parents on the two sides that made the decisions. But what, when you, how, how would you explain a family in which one daughter, or not just one family, because it might, she might be blind, she might be crippled. You can't always, the, the sources don't always tell you what kind of physical or mental incapacity there might be. Um, but it's when this is, again, it's when there's a cluster of these households uh, and when one out of three daughters is marrying or two out of three daughters is marrying, what's the, how, how do, is the father 
making the decision about which daughters can marry and which daughters won't marry. That doesn't seem likely to me. It's a possibility, but it doesn't seem uh, at all uh, likely. And if you are in a Spasavite household where there is a strong presumption that, let's say in the late 18th century, early 19th century, there's a strong presumption that women are not supposed to marry, um, then why would a why would the parents permit any daughter not to not, not to marry? So it, it's common I, in, in all of the sites, the village sites that I've studied where the demographic records are adequate for making this argument. Um, there are households in which daughters or somebody is making split decisions. Some daughters marry, others don't. Uh, from the tr- we in a couple of case, in a couple of cases we can, however, identify related practices. In one of the case studies, it's apparent that uh, daughters, the daughters, the the, sorry, the old believer daughters who marry are marrying by elopement. That is, they have, in a way, taken charge. They demonstrate that they have taken charge because they are literally making their own uh, matches. And in another case, the the, the, the owner, Sergei Mikhailovich Galitsyn, uh, sent instructions to a new man- state manager explaining that on this estate, fathers are permitting, are spoiling, are allowing their daughters not to marry. So in the, in the eyes of this particular surf owner, it, it is the daughters who are making decisions about whether to marry uh, or not. Um, he he lived in Moscow, far away from that particular estate, but there's a lot of manorial correspondence. He knew he was himself trying to force the women who weren't marrying to marry, and he did, for a lot of money, provide uh, manumission papers when the daughter, when the father had enough money, and the daughter stubbornly, stubbornly, stubbornly. Uh, wouldn't marry. So he, he may have known what he was talking about. But it's the, the cases where women are making are demonstrating that they are making the choice by eloping that seems to me the key to the argument that women really are the ones in Spasavite households in which daughters making different decisions, that they are making their own decision about whether to marry or not. Did you find any evidence in the church records that you investigated of uh, local clergy trying to intervene in marriage avoidance? Uh, y- yes. Uh, on the Galitsyn estate, this is in Nizhny, southern Nizhny Novgorod uh, province, the, poli- uh, the, um, the owner, Sergei uh, Mikhailovich Galitsyn, uh, repeatedly ordered his priests, that's what he thought, of, that's how he thought of them, ordered the priests uh, to, um, they had several organized campaigns of trying to intimidate um, uh, the women uh, to marry. He ordered his managers, one after another, to compel women to marry. The, 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 his efforts to force serf women to marry um, were, were Largely unavailing, and one one of the reasons I think so. So why did they fail? Why did the the 
awesome power of the serf owner to control his prop his human properties fate uh, fail um, uh, practically everybody on that estate was an old believer practically every one of the peasant officials on that estate was an old believer the old believers bribed the priests uh, to get them off um, the hook the old believers when they wanted to marry uh, that has bribed the priests to perform old believer style marriages using the same ritual, the ritual that uh, Nikon had abolished. Um, and so a surf owner sitting in Moscow far away from uh, his estate depends in large part on the cooperation of peasant officials. I mean, you can appoint a manager, um, Sergei Galitsyn should have known this, but he changed his managers too often. So his managers would spend two or three years running the estate. The first year, they would be entirely dependent on peasant elders to explain to them what was going on on the estate. Um, and then the peasant elders would bribe him. Um, it was very difficult for a, uh, a distant owner to actually control what was going on on the state so long as there was a relatively high degree of solidarity among the serfs. And there's nothing like being a persecuted religious minority to give you communal solidarity. Uh, why is there so few uh, sources from the Spasavites or the old believers themselves about their system of belief and practice? Mm. So... Let me say first that there aren't. I encountered that problem, but so so did has everyone else who is. And there aren't all that many studies of Spasovites. But here's an example: um, uh, Alexander Maltsev, who unfortunately died young, but was a prodigious researcher uh, in old believer uh, manuscripts, and he. He found a manuscript uh, history, a manuscript history, you know, the initial version of which was written in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, and he was so delighted, so excited by finding what seemed to him to be the first account produced by Spasovites themselves about the history of their covenant that he missed all the signs uh, demonstrating that this was a false history, that this was this was a fiction. And there are all, there are all kinds of signs. I actually wrote an article about that, uh, that this, this was, um, yeah, a, 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 a fictional history, and it, it was written in the context of a, uh, a system among the Spasovites uh, themselves. Um, so the Spasvites were, for the, for the most part, very secretive. So among the reasons I'm convinced why they decided that it was okay to go to confession and to get married in a church, in an Orthodox church, that is, was because it, that provided camouflage. Uh, if, uh, you, if you were baptized in the church, if you married in the church, and before you got married, you had to go to confession in the church, uh, then the priest considered you um, uh, orthodox, would report you as orthodox to the diocese, uh, list you as orthodox in the annual uh, confession register, and 
if you skipped for five or six years, you'd confession for five or six years, um, and then you go to confession once once a decade. That would probably be enough uh, to get the pre to persuade the priest that yes, you were maybe weak in the faith, but you were nevertheless um, uh, orthodox. Um, so at least from some at some time in the second half of the uh, of the 18th century, the the um, the Spotsvites, you might say, kind of went underground, uh, and they uh, so there there was an alternate name for Spotsvites, and it's you could call it Nothingites, the Nyetovci, and they they were all these un, these underground Nothingites were called underground Nothingites, or called themselves underground. The, Luchaya is was the Russian terms of Luchy and Yetetsi. Um and since they, among other things, did not hold church services for the, themselves, uh, they did not. So that they held discussions. They you know stand outside or between their their cabins and talk about uh, re religion, but they they didn't hold church services. Um, they didn't have really any organized uh, services. So the, uh, the, the Spasovites managed to um, conceal themselves. The most, most Spasovites in most places, the, my original Kuplia parish was an exception. Uh, most of them were considered by the local priest, either because the priest was bribed or the priest really didn't know, most most of these Spasovites were considered uh, to be uh, orthodox. Um, and I think, you know, you, you, this is one of them, how do you, how do you prove a negative? Uh, my, my assumption is that the Spasovites simply, because they were trying to kind of conceal themselves uh, they did not I'm sure they produced they produced some documents uh, but not very many I think it was deliberately to avoid attracting attention to themselves I mean that's yeah I think that that's the pattern I can't prove that uh, and it may be that there's some great catch of um, specified documents somewhere that will some somebody will sometime stumble upon, but a lot of people have been looking for them and nobody has found them. Uh, now, what changed in the marriage behavior of the Spasovites between the 1830s and the 1850s, uh, according to the data that you found in the villages you were looking at? So this was, this was, uh, I, uh, formally, the, um, the Spasovites separated into two Groups each calling themselves Spasovites, but the breakaway group who called themselves uh, Spasovites of the Great Right, meaning and what they meant by that was they had adopted a way of an, an, an abjuration ritual uh, under which they accepted new members who abjured their former heresies. The 
the traditionalist Spasovites accepted somebody into the uh, into their covenant if they performed a few sets of ritual bows. Um, so, but the much more important difference uh, was for for me in my story. Uh, the much more important difference is that the um, the people who became the great right Spasovites uh, valued marriage. Among other things, they said just what um, so priestless old believers who argued against the leaders of their covenants in the 18th century often said, God commands us to be fruitful and multiply and control the earth. Um, not control, anyway. So it was uh, marriage was a, an important component, a dispute over marriage. We see this in uh, the 1830s in Kuplia Parish. In the very at some, at some point in the 1830s, I can't give a precise year, but in let's say between 1830 and 1834, uh, almost in almost every Household in which there was a marriageable girl, the marriageable girl married. Now, this that it took one of the things that happened in the 19th century is that the census form changed, uh, and so in the 18th century, women women were listed in the censuses starting in 1763, and so. And, and then in the 18th century, the reason why a woman, after 1763, uh, the reason why a woman was not present uh, in the household at the next census was also given. So having married, having died, having run away, something like that, that was the kind of a, the explanation given in the census. In the 19th century, uh, no explanation was given for women who disappeared between censuses. In fact, in the 18th century, in 1782, there were two lists of people in a census form. They gave the list of who had been there in 1763, and then they gave the list of who was there in 1782, and then explained why the people who were missing were missing. But in the 19th century, the century, the, the census form explains who is there in, let's say, 1750, but leaves out all information about who, what women had been there uh, in um, 1734, I mean, 1834, which was the um, preceding census. So it's, if, you, if you have the 1834 and the 1850 census, you can identify what women have left, have disappeared, uh, but you don't know why they disappeared, and there are many different reasons why they might have. But um, using the, the best evidence that I can find to, to figure out what most likely happened to uh, unmarried women um, in uh, between 1834 and 1850, uh, it seems that almost all of them married and actually married away from the village. It's a very small village, so most uh, most most brides are from different villages and most 
young women in the village married into other uh, uh, villages. Um, so that began. It, it's it's a a sharp. I mean, there's no there, there's no question that a collective decision was taken by the local Spasovites. This happened not just in Kuplia Parish, but, I mean, in uh, Slutskova, it happened in the other two, um, you know, former crown pe- crown peasant villages uh, in the parish. It, it happens, the resumption of marriage by young women happens so- simultaneously in all three of those uh, villages. Uh, there was a... a Spasovite elder uh, living seven kilometers away in the very tiny city of Gorachavets. It just happens that uh, when a formal split was made uh, occurred in the 1740s, uh, the a very small council of uh, of uh, Spasovite elders met in this tiny city of Gorachavets and proclaimed the split. Uh, and so I believe that the resumption of marriage in Kuplia Parish uh, was the first sign uh, that a split was going to happen. And it happened because uh, the people in the breakaway, the, the breakaway um, uh, Spasovites believed that marriage was a religious duty. God has commanded us to marry. Uh, now, to wrap up, um, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, conclusion, or as you call it, in conclusions. Uh, so can you talk about why you named the final section that, uh, and what questions you feel still remain about uh, this area of research? I did that because it was clear, clear to me that I'd left a lot of questions unanswered. It was not... It can, it can, I felt that the... The questions unanswered were so obvious that I had to admit it and to make a point about the things I couldn't uh, address and why and why I couldn't. So number one, and this is the question that uh, was I was continually asked, uh, is how, how do I explain the behavior of the young women? And I really don't have a good explanation. I call in the book, as you know, I call the the Spasovites, the covenant of despair, because Spasovite teaching left them no real hope of salvation. They they dressed very plainly, as plain as the Amish. I think that would be a reasonable comparison. Uh, they allowed themselves no color, no decoration at all in their clothing. They banned even colorful bags and is a, not, not, nothing multicolored. Their, 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 their bags had to be as gray, as unattractive as uh, their clothing. I think this was a sign of their despair, an, a symbol of uh, the sad state of the world and of their own fate as they saw things. And there are, there, there are bits and pieces of evidence that support this. Um, I mean, I just didn't make it up. Um, but it's a very incomplete demonstration of, the, of, of what women were thinking when they decided uh, not to marry. So that's, that's number one. The internal spiritual life of the Spasovites, because of the almost complete lack of documentation of it, 
um, is something that I recognize as being a huge missing part of the argument that I would like to make, but there just isn't evidence uh, to fill in that gap. Another major lacuna in our keeping whole is um, a demographic question. In and around Couplia Parish, so many women refuse to marry. I mean, I think the average around uh, Couplia Parish is that about 20% of all adult women ne never never married. I mean, that's, that's below the astounding level in uh, Slutskova and in one of the other villages in Kuklia Parish. But if, 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 if every, huh, if every Spasovite man is marrying, and after a single generation in the 18th century, every Spasovite male did marry, and 20% of the Spasovite feel, uh, uh, women aren't marrying, then where are the Spasovite men getting their wives? I assume that they are marrying women of other old believer confessions who are willing to marry into the Spasovite um, confession covenant, but uh, I can't be sure of that. But there were so many Spasovites in the area that there's no question that um, if 20% of the women in the district are not marrying, then there aren't enough women to be wives for all the men. I have no idea how that um, demographic uh, shortfall was filled. I propose, as you know, that we can imagine the distance that men would go searching for brides kept increasing. I know that's true for the in the 18th century. Hypothesize that that continued into the 19th century, at least up to 1830. Um, but it's a it's a demographic puzzle that I can't really solve. Uh, it would, yeah, for reasons that are both obvious and not so obvious. That's a very hard puzzle to solve. I'm trying to keep track of the, the, the doc, <clears throat> a complete set of documents to answer the question will not ever be able to be assembled. Okay. I don't know how many, uh, what pr what pr proportion of the covenant broke apart from the traditionalist Spasovites in eighteen uh, in the eighteen forties. I don't know what happened to the traditionalist Spasovites after the eighteen fifties because the eighteen fifty eight census is the last one that listed everybody household by household. Most of the confession registers, which are pretty good demographic sources, uh, were destroyed in the 1920s. The Soviet Archive Archive Directorate uh, permitted local archives to destroy the uh, confession registers, and it seems that all, everywhere. Um, so after a certain date, after eight, all confession registers after 1865 could be thrown away, and they almost all were every every place that I've looked. But they also threw away most in most archives threw away most of the confession registers from before. Right? But in any case, I have no sources comparable to the ones I used for the 18th and first half of the 19th century to chart either specified demographic. Um, uh, practices or quantify or try to quantify 
uh, exactly how many uh, uh, Basavites uh, and of what kind there were. So the story, I can't carry the story to the end. I hypothesized and explained why I was doing it this way, uh, that the rate of at which Spasavite women or old believer women in general were avoiding marriage gradually declined in the second half of the of the 19th century. But I'd like to have more, and that's that's at best it's a plausible guess. Uh, again, it's a an obvious part of the story, and I don't know how to how to fill that gap. So. I think I accomplished a number of things that were interesting, but I'm also aware of how many how many things I that seem obviously need explanation that I've been unable to explain. Okay. Well, Dr. Bushnell, thank you very much again for joining me today. It was a great pleasure to read your book and to discuss it with you. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs>